The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What's going on? This gentleman says that I'm not permitted to dine here. No, you don't understand. He's playing tonight. He's the main event. I'm sorry, but it is the policy of the restaurants. Everything all right? Uh, no, it's not all right. This guy's saying Dr. Shirley can't eat here. Oh, well, I apologize, but these are long-standing traditions, club rules. I'm sure you understand. No, I do not understand. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Are you telling me the bozos in his band and all these people that came here to see him play, they can eat here? But the star of the show, the, the parking spot of honor, he can't? I'm afraid not. Well, he's got to eat. I mean, he's got to have dinner. Okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't we bring something to his dressing room, huh? John, show him a menu. No. I'm not eating in that storage room. Okay, uh, well, if you prefer, there's a very popular establishment right down the road, the Orange Bird. They'd be happy to feed you. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 21st, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Today on the show, I am joined by Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever, who last joined us back on August 5th to propose that, quote, vaccination discrimination, end quote, should be outlawed, not just by governments, but by private businesses and enterprises. Of course, to many of those who recognize and support the idea of private property rights, which of course Freedom Party does, and Paul and I do, this may seem to be a contradiction or a policy that would violate not just private property rights, but also freedom of association. We did receive some feedback to that end, and today that conversation will continue with the aim of addressing these objections. Now, back on September 9th, Paul has released on the site of the Freedom Party of Ontario, which you can find at www.freedomparty.on.ca, a written response to these objections entitled, The Rights Argument, A Self-Destructive Perversion of Rights, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Isn't that the case, Paul? It is. And we would have had this conversation earlier, but were somewhat interrupted by the recent federal election, (laughs) which commanded our attention. So we will have that conversation right after. Our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, Paul, I should point out that I have on my own laid out some additional groundwork for today's discussion on at least two additional broadcasts that were subsequent to our last conversation. Oh, by the way, welcome to the show again. Oh, thank you, Bob. (laughs) The first was on August 12th, 
that followed our last conversation, and I called it the wrong to property. It sort of followed up on the, the, the issues that come up with property, because property ends up being an integral part of what we know as fascism. Right. And, the, and, and, you know, that proverbial partnership, private-public partnership. And then on uh, September 30th, we did a show called Emergency Ethics and the Rule of Lawlessness, which spoke to this issue as well. So I guess our conversation today continues with you telling us about what the rights argument is so that we all know what we're either agreeing with or objecting to. Sure. Well, uh, following the show, of course, we got two or three uh, thoughtful emails. And uh, I thought, you know, these emails really deserve a consolidated response. So this is what I did. I I put together... Also, also, it should be pointed out, we, we once shared these views, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, the rights argument is something that's frequently made, uh, has been made by me, has been made by you, has been made probably in Freedom Party literature. It's not as though uh, it's, it's unique to someone other than us. We've, we've all made it. But, you know, in thinking about the, um, the, the response to the so-called pandemic, etc., it really sheds light on areas that you don't often get to see. That's right. When when theory turns into practice, suddenly you see things that other people can't. Yeah, people start to ask questions that never got asked before. George, what happened? Are you all right? What is it? Rain. Real rain? Oh my God. It's going to be fine, George. You're with us now. What are we going to do, Bob? Well, we're safe for now. Thank goodness we're in a bowling alley. That is real rain out there, gentlemen. This isn't some little virus that'll clear up on its own. Something is happening to our town. And I think we can all see where it's coming from. My friends, it's a question of values. It's a question of whether we want to hold on to those values that made this place great. So, a time has come to make a decision. Are we in this thing alone, or are we in it together? So I've called this argument that we've used in the past and that the writers had written to us about I'm going to call it the rights argument. That's not a formal name. That's just what I called it for the sake of the of the essay that I wrote. Sure. And it has it has five main parts. And I think that people who wrote to us would agree it has five main parts. The first part is that everyone has rights of life, liberty, and property, and that you know it's appropriate to use force to defend those rights. And some people say they're God given. Other people say they're natural. Ayn Rand had her own way of looking at it. But uh, whatever the origin is, the rights argument proponent will say that these rights exist independently of any government or law. They have to be respected by government and by others, right? So they, they kind of float out there independently, maybe you could say philosophically, or if you believe in you know the uh, divine origin of them, you know God's law or what have you, but they exist independently of law. That's the one point. And the second point is that we all somehow delegate to government these rights, so the, the enforcement of these rights. And we all, it's, it's not too clear how this delegation happens. And in fact, one could argue that it's a false concept. You know, this, this idea actually comes out of a, a quite a leftist argument. Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, wrote a book called The Social Contract, in which essentially he made the same argument, that we, 
somehow delegate our rights to the government. And that book, if you read it, leads to some pretty tyrannical conclusions, but I think naturally so, and that's part of the flaw in the, in the rights argument. Funny how Rousseau's name has been coming up a lot lately in our conversations, like not just with you and me, but with other people I'm talking to. Well, he was sort of the, the arch tyrant, you know, and a lot of people right. even today think he's some kind of advocate for an enlightenment. He was actually the end of the enlightenment. He was the beginning of what's called the romantic period in, in philosophy. Now, the third part of this argument, the rights argument, is that all of the government's lawmaking or enforcing power, enforcement power comes from having these rights delegated to it, right? So if the government's doing something, it has to be doing something because we've authorized it by delegating to them the job of doing only one thing, and that's defending our life, our liberty, and our property. I mean, Ayn Rand, uh, she wrote in uh, Atlas Shrugged, I've got a quote here, quote, the only proper purpose of a government is to protect man's rights, which means to protect him from physical violence. Now, she obviously didn't mean that in a completely literal sense. Uh, for example, nonviolent things that are illegal, she was she would be in favor of those too, like fraud, uh, yeah. copyright, copyright infringement. All kinds of things are not violent and yet are a, a violation of what she would re regard as rights. So even, even, si even simple property disputes where you're arguing about where a property line goes, you know, like these yeah. can be very honest things between honest people. Right. You have to take sentences that are plucked out of novels or out of, even out of, um, you know, nonfiction with a bit of a grain of salt because they're, they're in a deep context that the author doesn't necessarily believe she needs to repeat, you know. Right. Now, the fourth part of this rights argument is that a government, because its job is to defend rights, has no authority to violate anyone's rights. Right. So it can't do the very thing that it's supposed to be operating to prevent. You know, and that's, that's pretty obvious. They can't, for example, steal. So that's the objectivist or even libertarian or conservative argument about, you know, it's my property or it's my earnings. You shouldn't be taxing it away from me uh, and giving it to other people, etc. Or you shouldn't be trotting on my land. All these things are thought to be violations by government. Violations because they're doing the very thing they're supposed to prevent other people from doing, taking our money, walking on our land, that kind of thing. Now, the fifth and final part of this argument, I would say, is that, therefore, if the government imposes a ban, and here we go back to the segregation thing, okay? If the government imposes a ban denying a person access to a premises for the reason that the person belongs to some collective or another, you know, one based on race or whether or not they've had, say, the COVID-19 uh, shot, that that would be a violation of liberty or property rights of individuals, including those of you know, the owners of shops, coffee shops, that kind of thing. So the argument being made by the rights argument proponents that wrote to us and others is that the government has no business preventing a store owner, like a coffee shop owner, from deciding when and, you know, under what circumstances he'll allow people on his property. The government's only role is if he says, I want that guy removed, the government does it, irrespective of why the guy wants the person removed. And I think that's sort of a clue into what's, you know, we'll talk about this some more, but I think what's going to be seen to be the problem with the rights argument. And coming up next from the Rubin Report way back in 2016 on May 6th, here is the Ayn Rand Institute's Yaron Brook actually expressing the very 
idea of what Paul is calling the rights argument. I'm saying let's shift the model to where we trust individuals, we trust their self-interest, we, we, we leave companies alone, and if the companies do bad things, let them fail. We can boycott them if we don't like the way they behave towards, I don't know, gays or whatever. If we don't like the, their behavior, don't, don't go to Chick-fil-A. Just don't buy Chick-fil-A. Boycott them. That's right, great. so this is where you would say if the, if the uh, Christian pizza maker doesn't want to make pizza for gays, you wouldn't say let the government stop them from doing that. You would say, well, boycott them and don't give them business. And yes, but I, I want to be a little bit more radical than that because, because this is a problem. We, we have Ted Cruz and people like that talking about religious freedoms. What religious freedom? I just believe in freedom. <laughs> and the fact is that people have a right to discriminate. So my point is this. If the baker doesn't want to bake a cake for a Jewish wedding, he has just as much right to do that as he has to discriminate. But I would stand outside with a placard. I'd be on the barricades to drive that immoral bastard out of business, right? Yeah. But he has a right to be a bigot. People have a right to be racist. Yeah, they just don't you. have a right to force it on you. You know, some of my friends on the left will say, well, but they're using, you know, the public street that they're on. So then they, they we wouldn't want them to discriminate against black people. And I get the idea behind but that. But once they but walk I, off the public street into your it, store, it's yours. It, I, I am very discriminating on who I invite to my home. We all discriminate. Discrimination is a good thing. What we need to teach people is not to discriminate based on stupid things or non-essential things. You discriminate based on a person's character. That's the appropriate discrimination. But are they always going to be irrational people? Are they always going to be stupid people? Are they always going to be bad people? Yes. But the job of the government is not to legislate them out of their stupidity. The job of the government is to let them suffer the consequences of their stupidity, which means back off. Now, back in 1938, the first edition of a guidebook called the Negro Motorist Green Book was published. In a society where black motorists were routinely denied service at gas stations, prohibited from staying at hotels, and randomly imprisoned, or worse, killed for driving in the wrong community, it served as a guide to help navigate the unwritten rules of oppression in a Jim Crow world. Well, 26 years later, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, guaranteeing an end to discrimination in public accommodations because you shouldn't need to consult a manual to drive safely in a free world. Now, today we face a similar but much different network of vaguely defined social norms regulating behavior where the law simply hasn't caught up to the times. Because if we continue to ignore the warnings, it won't be long before none of us have any rights anymore. And all we'll be left with is a new green book filled with advice and best practices and terms of service we hope keeps us safe. Now, Paul, Aaron Brooks said people have a right to discriminate, but he himself would protest that guy out of business. Isn't he almost doing the same thing as what the government would do? And... He argues that once an individual walks off the public street and goes into a store, that store is yours. And I would say, yeah, if you had it closed to the public, but if you open it to the public, it's still your store. But I think you're still more in a sort of a public jurisdiction. Wouldn't, am I looking at that wrong? No, I think you're right. But So let's talk about that word jurisdiction. What does it mean? Well, jurisdiction means that someone has the power to make laws. Right. right. And, you know, 
we were saying in the first quarter there that that you know there's a lot of disagreement among even people who make the rights argument about where the rights come from. Right. Well, and and you can make those arguments all day long, but a police officer won't give a darn whether you believe you have rights that were given to you by by God, or whether you believe you have natural rights, or whether you believe that this is sophisticated philosophical argument. The police officer says, well, I'm looking at this piece of legislation here, and it says, okay, so the only rights, the only property rights, the only entitlements, whatever you want to call them, that anybody has are rights that are written down in, by the legislature or in our courts, you know, so they're laws. In other words, without a law, you don't have a right that any government or any police officer can or will enforce. So when well, we there, talk about... Sorry. Well, there is a distinction, isn't there, between legal rights and what we might call God-given or natural rights. And they're both legitimate conversations. But when does one supersede the other? And that's, I think, the big issue. Right, um, or even when should they? I mean, when you're talking about rights, like God-given rights or natural rights, that kind of thing, you know, it's a, it's a philosophical conversation, which isn't to say it's unimportant. It's to say that it's about philosophy. Right. And, and the, the goal of the rights advocate is to say that there's this sort of higher law or a higher commandment that everybody, including the government, has to obey. And that's where the philosophy comes in. We say government ought not to do this or government ought to do the other. So it's about shoulds, right? But laws aren't about shoulds or should nots. They're about shalls and shall nots. They're about when someone's going to point a gun and when they're not. And that's a big difference from the argument about, about shoulds and should nots, right? So if you're talking about the government shouldn't have the right to do this, or I should have the right to have a police officer come in and do the other, that's philosophy. And that's true. Perfectly... And, but isn't this debate exclusively between the two philosophical sides of it. Like, we might argue that, yeah, the government should interfere when somebody discriminates in a improper way, and the government shouldn't interfere when they <laughs> discriminate in, in a proper way. Yeah, I mean, that's a political argument, right? When as soon as you're talking about the law ought to do this, or the law ought to do that, or the government ought to do this, the government ought to do that, whenever you're talking about law itself, then I don't think you're talking about ethics anymore. You're not really talking about shoulds and, sh and should nots. You're talking no. about something else, right? And the rights argument proponent normally says, or at least implies, that the way you figure out which laws ought to exist is to look at ethics. You say, okay, the, the law is there to protect my choice to, do, to, to, to live rationally, uh, to pursue my own uh, happiness, right? Because that, for me, is good. And so we, as a matter of philosophy, we say, well, human beings are rational individuals, and that the purpose of their, of their existence is to pursue their own survival and happiness, and that therefore the law should defend my ability to do that. Now, that's if you take our view. If you, if you take the view that the, the law is there to protect uh, human nature, to defend it. But of course, there's all kinds of people who take the opposite view, that Human nature is a, an awful thing, and the law is there to tame it or to defeat it, you know. But if you're if you're taking the view that the law is there to protect your life, liberty, and property, or defend your life, liberty, and property, I think the mistaken argument is that ethical philosophy says I have rights of life, liberty, and property, and therefore the government is compelled to do only that, defend my life, liberty, and property. I think that's an error. It's assuming that because 
you've got four main questions in philosophy. You know, metaphysics says, what is there out there? Epistemology says, how do I know what's out there? Ethics says, what ought to, I to do now that I know what's out there? And then politics, I think properly understood, is when ought the government to use force? Or when I, ought I to use force or delegate it to the government to use force? So I think the mistake is to assume that because there's a hierarchy in philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics, that therefore the only part that affects the consideration of the next part is the one immediately preceding it. So in other words, you can ignore metaphysics and epistemology when you're talking about politics. All you need to do is look at ethics. And I think that's the flaw in the rights argument. That's one of them, probably the main one. It seems like you should be able to just chain things in order. Start with what is, go to how do I know it, go to what ought I to do, and then just based on what ought I to do, form your whole political philosophy. And I think that's a, that's a mistake. I don't think that's where proper lawmaking comes from. Now, interestingly, I was thinking about this the other day. What's the sort of emotional connection to all of this? And I think the emotional connection is a person wants to believe that there is a space, sort of a hallowed space, my, you know, my castle, where the government just butts out and I get to do whatever I want. Now, no, I don't, I'm not saying that rights arguments people think that they can murder people within their house or anything like that. But they say, I think, implied in, in the rights argument is this idea that I don't have to treat other individuals as human beings if they're on my property. This is an anarchic space. I'm the boss. There's no government in here except when I tell them to come in and do my bidding. They're there to serve me when it's on my land. And if I say, get that guy out of my store, no questions asked, just do it. It's my property. That's the end of the story. I think that's a, that's a real error. It's also what a lot of the police are already doing, irrespective of what the business person's reasons are. Yeah, that's right. The business person says, you know, get this guy out of here he's not vaccinated, the police will hustle him out. I mean, obviously we've seen, thankfully, a lot of police officers and et cetera saying, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to enforce that stuff. But that's not universally the case. Obviously there's all kinds of video on YouTube where you can see police officers manhandling people and dragging them out of stores because they, right. So, so you it know. shows you, that, so, so it shows you that there are certain police officers who do detect that there's something wrong with being ordered to do something like that. And, well, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Bob. No, they almost seem to, know that instinctively to use the word improperly <laughs> but you know what well, i mean and, yeah and you know what um, most advocates of the rights argument most proponents of the rights argument will say as Euron brooke did in that clip well i would never discriminate i think it's irrational i think it's evil but it's his property right so you see well, yeah, he, this, he, said, he said that on that basis, but he also said he does discriminate on an individual basis, but not on stupid things. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, yeah, that's a false equivocation, I think. When he's saying, I get to choose who my friends are, that's a, that's a very different argument than the law ought to be this or the law ought to be that. Or who your business customers are. That's, I, that's an entirely different relationship, as I see it in my mind anyway. Because yeah. as soon as you get into a business or commerce relationship, you're already operating under the purview of that third party that we call government. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it on public property in a market or using your private property in a market of mm -hmm. some sort. Mm -hmm. Here's one more item for you, the last in our civics book, rights. Boy, everyone in this country is always running around yammering about their...
American rights. I have a right. You have no right. We have a right. They don't have a right. Folks, I hate to spoil your fun, but there's no such thing as rights, okay? They're imaginary. We made them up, like the boogeyman. <laughs> the three little pigs, Pinocchio, Mother Goose, shit like that. Rights are an idea. They're just imaginary. They're a cute idea. Cute. But that's all cute and fictional. But if you think you do have rights, let me ask you this. Where do they come from? People say, well, they come from God. They're God-given rights. Oh, f here we go again. Here we go again. The God excuse. The last refuge of a man with no answers and no argument. It came from God. Anything we can't describe must have come from God. Personally, folks, I believe that if your rights came from God, he would have given you the right to some food every day, and he would have given you the right to a roof over your head. God would have been looking out for you. God would have been looking out for you. You know that? He wouldn't have been worried about making sure you have a gun so you could get drunk on Sunday night and kill your girlfriend's parents. But let's say it's true. Let's say God gave us these rights. Why would he give us a certain number of rights? The Bill of Rights in this country has 10 stipulations, okay? 10 rights. And apparently God was doing sloppy work that week because we've had to amend the Bill of Rights an additional 17 times. So God forgot a couple of things like slavery. Just slipped his mind. But let's say Let's say God gave us the original 10. He gave the British 13. The British Bill of Rights has 13 stipulations. The Germans have 29. The Belgians have 25. The Swedish have only six. And some people in the world have no rights at all. What kind of a fucking goddamn God-given deal is that? No rights at all? Why would God give different people in different countries different numbers of different rights? Boredom? Amusement? Bad arithmetic? Do we find out at long last, after all this time, that God is weak in math skills? Doesn't sound like divine planning to me. Sounds more like human planning. Sounds more like one group trying to control another group. In other words, business as usual in America. Now, if you think you do have rights, one last assignment for you. Next time you're at the computer, get on the internet, go to Wikipedia. When you get to Wikipedia, in the search field for Wikipedia, I want you to type in Japanese Americans 1942, and you'll find out all about your precious rights, okay? All right. You know about it. You know about it. Yeah. In 1942, there were 110,000 Japanese American citizens and good standing law abiding people who were thrown into internment camps simply because their parents were born in the wrong country. That's all they did wrong. They had no right to a lawyer, no right to a fair trial, no right to a jury of their peers, no right to due process of any kind. The only right they had, right this way, into the internment camps. Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. And rights aren't rights if someone can take them away. They're privileges. That's all we've ever had in this country is a bill of temporary privileges. And if you read the news even badly, you know that every year the list gets shorter and shorter and shorter. You see how similar it is? Yeah. Sooner or later, the people in this country are going to realize the government does not give a f 
about them. Government doesn't care about you or your children or your rights or your welfare or your safety. It simply doesn't give a f about you. It's interested in its own power, that's the only thing, keeping it and expanding it wherever possible. Personally, when it comes to rights, I think one of two things is true. I think either we have unlimited rights or we have no rights at all. Personally, I lean toward unlimited rights. I feel, for instance, I have the right to do anything I please. But if I do something you don't like, I think you have the right to kill me. So where are you going to find a fairer f***ing deal than that? So the next time some ass says to you, I have a right to my opinion, you say, oh yeah, well I have a right to my opinion, and my opinion is you have no right to your opinion. Then shoot the f*** and walk away. Thank you. Free markets are the key to a robust America. But free markets alone cannot rescue an industry ruled by multinational behemoths that are allowed to engage in what appears to be collusive behavior without fear of legal ramifications. Apple and Google together control upwards of 99% of the mobile market. In a world where 80% of all social media engagement occurs on mobile devices, being locked out of the Apple and Google universe makes scaling a business virtually impossible. Conversely, Amazon controls 32% of the server market and generates more revenue than the next three largest competitors combined. Without servers, a digital company simply cannot exist. That's just the reality. And so the issue before us is clear. The digital world is no longer an alternative method of communication. It is the primary conduit for communication and increasingly is used as a proxy for the world at large. Big tech has effectively become a utility, a public accommodation, like the electric company, the water bureau, or even our roadways. And in America, no utility company can refuse to provide you with service for engaging in constitutionally protected activities or simply because they don't like you. Now imagine for a moment if fishing were a constitutional right, that all Americans had a right to catch, find, and eat fish wherever they may roam. Now imagine that 80% of all the fishing holes in America were owned by private companies. Imagine that you had to ask these private companies for a license to gain access to the fish and that they reserve the right to revoke permission at any time for whatever reason they deemed necessary. The obvious question would become, what is the virtue of a constitutional right to fish if the only places where you can exercise that right are not obligated to honor it? Well, that is effectively the moral and ethical quandary thrust upon us by the outrageous overreach of the five big tech companies this week. In a world where the overwhelming majority of all business, personal, and political speech is nonverbal digital communication, less than a handful of companies control all the levers of speech with virtual autonomy. Facebook and Twitter control over 80% of the social media marketplace. Apple and Google combined control nearly 80% of the email marketplace. And when companies that monopolize the tools for modern speech can unilaterally decide who has access to communication with the world, 
Freedom of speech is no longer a foundational principle, but a luxury afforded to a select few. And, and that should terrify everybody. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. We're talking about the rights argument with Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. And Paul, so what is actually wrong with the rights argument? I think it makes a mistake about the nature of law, Bob. As I say, I think it assumes that the, the nature of law is that it's a rights enforcement mechanism, but that's not what it is. And if we look at three examples, you can see how that view really perverts the, the, the purpose of the law. It really, oh, that's, it does really, so, that's really remarkable to say that the nature of law is not a rights enforcement function. That's right. And, and that's the mistake, right? Um, you know, lawyer, lawyer Bruce Party made the same argument on one of the previous broadcasts that we did, and he was going along that same line of reasoning. Well, I mean, he's going to be coming from that right. law is the only kind of, of rights that, a, that an officer is going to enforce. He's certainly going to say that as a lawyer, as I am. Yeah. Um, but if you take the practical application, so, you know, my house, my rules. Okay, this is the general thinking in the rights argument. So let's take three arguments, or three examples, and I'll show how at the various levels of philosophy they cause problems. So at the metaphysical level, what is your nature as a human being? You're an individual, right? What about at the epistemological level? Well, at the epistemological level, the nature of a human being is that you're rational, you have a rational capacity, or as Aristotle said, you're the rational animal. Well, what about ethically? Oh, well, ethically, it's in your nature that it's right for you to pursue your own happiness. Okay? Now, all of these things get ignored by the rights argument that just says, I've got these rights, government enforce them. So let's have a look at what the effect is on metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. In other words, on the nature of a human being and how uh, the rights argument leads to an abuse of... Uh, you know, the, the greater philosophical nature of a human being. So imagine, first of all, guy has a coffee shop, he puts a sign in the window, whites only, you know, uh, we don't serve anyone who's not white, anybody who's not white should not step a foot in this store. In comes a darker skinned man. He politely orders a coffee. The store owner says, can't you read? I said, whites only, I'm not serving you a coffee, get out. The darker skin man stands there and says, again, politely, sir, I would like to order a coffee. This goes back and forth. The store owner calls the police. The police arrive. He says, get this guy out of my store. He won't leave. On the rights argument, that's the end of the argument. Okay? The officer is required by law to enforce that property right. Out the door, he takes the man, the, the darker skin man. No questions asked. Yeah. We don't yeah, get the into the irony about your example is that in today's environment, it would be the white guy getting kicked out of the store. <laughs> <laughs> well, the politics at all levels comes into all this, doesn't it? Yeah, but it, of course. But the but the thing is here, just no saying. questions asked, right? <laughs> if there's right. just a right, and you don't get to know, but what my motives are, it's irrelevant. Uh, it's my property, so everything else is irrelevant. Now, here's a, here's another example. So that's the example that talks about individualism, right? Because this man's coming in and he's being lumped together with all other non-whites, as a class, as a category, as a collective, right? So what's just happened there? The store owner has had the state come in, use force to enforce collectivism, okay? So on a metaphysical level, human beings are treated not as individuals, but as parts of a collective. That's the first violation. 
Let's go to epistemology. Epistemologically, a human being is the rational animal. So a woman goes and sees a lawyer who drafts up wills normally, and the lawyer says, ah, a woman. Women don't know what's good for them. How would you possibly be able to instruct me about what's in your interests in terms of what goes into your will? You must go home, bring your husband back, he will give me instructions about what goes into your will. And the same kind of argument ensues, where she says, look, sir, I'd like you to prepare my will. I'm not leaving until you do. The lawyer calls the police officer and says, get this person out of my office. I've told her already, come back with her husband. It's my property. She has to leave. Do your duty. The officer drags the lady out out of the law office. So what's just happened there? Well, property rights have been used to call in the state to use force to enforce a view of that woman that she's irrational, that she's incapable of thinking rationally, that she lacks a rational faculty. You might remember, Bob, uh, in uh, Leonard Peikoff's book, The um, Ominous Parallels, he talks about polylogism and how the the, uh, Nazis thought that Jewish people had a different logic than non-Jewish people, a different way of thinking altogether. I mean, genetically, they were incapable of thinking the same way. That's this kind of irrationality that's inherent when a person says she can't think for herself, she lacks the ability to think, she needs to bring back her husband. Hey, take her out of here forcibly. So here we have the state being called in to enforce irrationality. Let's use one more example. In China right now, they've got this thing called the social credit system, where they're tracking you know, your activities, what you buy, what you do, what you participate in, and they give you a social credit score. How good are you? In other words, how communist are you? So imagine that this restaurateur decides that she wants to make a lot more money. And she comes up with this plan where she's going to make a lot of money by selling only to the well-to-do. And as a result, because she's a capitalist and a profit seeker, her social credit score goes way down. She needs to buy groceries to serve food at a restaurant. So when she goes to the grocer, the grocer says, your social credit score is very low. Come back when you care more about people. Come back when you are not putting yourself first, your own happiness first. Come back when you put other people before yourself and you have a better social credit score. She says, look, I'm just here to buy some lettuce and some beef. Would you please sell that to me? He says, no, get out of my store. This goes on. He calls the police. He says, get this you know, rotten capitalist out of my store. It's my store, my property, your job as the, as the police officer is to enforce my property rights. Get her out of here. So what's just happened? Property rights have been used to call the state in to enforce collectivism, or in this case, socialism in particular. Altruism, that ethical code that underpins it. So we're turning the state into an agent of force against the pursuit of happiness. So there's three examples where because a person has a right, and that's just the end of the, of the argument, and that the government has to enforce it, The government is being used as an agent of force against individualism, against rationality, and against rational egoism. Now, how can you have a free society when the proper role of government is to act upon a demand that someone use force to violate those essential natures of a human being, that they're individuals, that they're rational, and that they pursue their own happiness first and foremost? That's not a recipe for a free society. That's an idea of rights or of of freedom that is actually the opposite of freedom. It's using rights 
as a weapon against individual freedom and, I, and against a free society. And that's what I think the uh, rights argument leads to. It's interesting when you first, you know, set out the nature of a person being individual, you know, a rational individual. I, st- I suddenly envisaged in my mind this very extreme circumstance where, say, a store owner, for whatever reason, starts hallucinating and he sees all his customers as lizards or something like that, right? Right. So he calls in the police to remove all the lizards. Do you think it's the lizards they're going to remove or him? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, there they're because, taking into account the the, the, the reasons, the right? Yeah. yeah, and that he's not acting rationally anymore. And it is no different than if that person looked at everybody as some part of a collective. That's the same logic. It hit me like a ton of bricks as you were explaining that. Yeah, yeah. And, and now there's there's also this other element, too, which is, you know, and, I, and I, I've been screaming this on some shows, even the last time I talked to Salim Mansour, I said, Salim, it's all cronyism. Everything's about cronyism in politics, and it has been that for ages, which is private interests basically taking over the damn government. Cronyism begins with private interests and private business. Oh, yeah. The whole idea of public-private partnership, that is the nature of fascism. That is not freedom. What happens then is you've got partners in crime. And as I've argued for decades, as soon as government regulates any aspect of business, and we can certainly see that with the doctors, this was inevitable. Who ends up controlling who? It's always a regulated business that ends up controlling the government to do its own regulation for its own purposes. And you see this universally over and over and over again. And I often said, if we controlled plumbers the same way we do medical people, the whole country would be run by plumbers who are keeping all their competition out of business. Oh, yeah. Well, I was talking with someone the other day about the nature of laws. And I said, look, laws don't always serve the purpose you think. Employment standards laws, let's say. I'm familiar with those being an employment lawyer. Let's take minimum wage, for example. What's the, what's the purpose of a minimum wage law? Well, some people will say, oh, it's so those wealthy you know, capitalists, industrialists, and, you know, business owners can't squeeze the little guy, so they have to pay them a decent wage. That's not what it's about. The purpose of a, of a, uh, a minimum wage is to prevent your neighbor from undercutting you. So let's say that, that there's some business owner and he's looking for someone to wash dishes. You want to get paid the minimum wage, let's say $15. Some other guy says, well, hey, I'll do it for six bucks. And you're like, I don't want to do it for six bucks. So the, the, you know, the owner says, well, why would I pay you 15 if he's willing to do it for six? So the guy who wants the, you know, the, the pay to be 15 and to do it for 15 writes to his local MPP and says, hey, there ought to be a law that says nobody can do it for less than I want to do it for. 15 bucks. So really, it's just protectionism, exactly like you're talking about. One neighbor using the law to get what he wants at the expense of his other neighbor. In a way, you're already describing a fact that a business, unlike just a personal home, totally different thing, is already benefiting from a lot of sort of crony politics, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, before it, it even before it even gets off the starting mark, so to say that government can't regulate business in a rational way is, I think, irrational. Right. Well, or take for example, you know, the uh, workplace safety and insurance board, okay, which yeah. imposes a system of payouts to people who are injured on the job. Well, what's the purpose of that? Well, that's because 
if you if you didn't have a law like that, there would be all kinds of lawsuits, right? People who got you know this hammer fell on my toe and broke my toe. Well, now he's going to sue the employer because the hammer wasn't properly stored yeah. or something like that. So the business owners get together and say, like, why don't we just put a pool in place, a pool of money, and um, we'll make everyone pay into the pool. And the guy whose workplace is actually most prone to, to injury, he'll get a he'll get a break because all the people who really don't have that much injury going on in their workplace will still have to pay into the pool. So they'll be subsidizing the guy who has a, a dangerous workplace. Oh, and at the same time, we're going to make that law say that the guy who got injured can't sue, can't get full value for what happened to him. So the, the law is not there to make sure that the guy who injured his toe or whose toe was injured has, you know, a decent uh, amount of money. No, it's there to protect the employer from the employee who was injured, who might otherwise get justice. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in sort of in summary here, Bob, you know, the, the problem with the rights argument can be solved by remembering that the, the purpose of law is not to enforce rights per se, but to defend human nature, right? To defend your, your nature as an individual, to defend your nature as a rational animal, to defend your nature as a person who's pursuing his own uh, happiness first and foremost, and to make sure that other people don't prevent you from acting in those ways, from being an individual, that people don't use force or fraud or lies, cheating, etc., to prevent you from living a life in accordance with reason, who uh, don't use or abuse force to prevent you from pursuing your own happiness. You know, if you, if you keep that purpose in mind, you simply have to ask yourself, does this law defend human nature or does it offend or defeat human nature? And as long as you've got that as your criterion, I think you're on safer ground than by saying, I've got rights, your job is to make laws to defend them. Well, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Make no mistake about it. From the multi-platform ban of President Trump to the blacklisting of the conservative platform parlor, what we witnessed from the tech giants was a full-on assault on freedom in America. Now, this past week, we learned with stunning clarity that the protections that have come to define American liberty lack the elasticity necessary to preserve our freedoms in a modern digital age. Because Apple, Google, Twitter, Facebook, and Amazon, these are not your run-of-the-mill private companies. And while it may be difficult to understand how the actions of companies that have been around for less than three decades could compromise the freedoms of a republic 243 years strong, when we truly examine the role technology plays in our everyday life, that danger that these big tech oligarchs uh, and their incursion to our, our American freedoms comes clearly into focus. Let me pose an impossible question mm. uh, and and get your answer on it. I, I know my answer, but it's one that I'm really not comfortable with, but I think it has to be done, and I'd love to hear your solution because it is one that is currently kind of on the, uh, the edge of going mainstream, mm. and it's, it, it is just... Okay, Mr. Constitutionalist, what do you do? Does a company have a right to say uh, no shirts, no shoes, no service? Yes. Do they have a right to say 
anyone with a blue shirt cannot come in. <laughs> Be a strange business choice, but yes, <laughs> yes they, they, they could. could theoretically they do could. that. Do they have a right to say, I'm not making a gay wedding cake? Yes. Um, do they have a right to say, I'm only making gay wedding cakes? Yes. Okay. Do they have a right to say, I'm staying open, you can't close me down because of COVID? I would argue yes. Do they have a right to say... <laughs> Something's coming. <laughs> yeah. Do they have a right to say, only vaccine people can come in to only, our store? Only vaccinated people. Only vaccinated people. Only people who have been vaccinated. I think uh, I, I would argue yes, even though I think a lot of the audience would disagree. I think they would, too. And I would agree with you that, yes, you can't make it. You can't say it's constitutional on one side and not on the other. With this caveat, mm. I have no problem if it's Joe's Deli, uh, you know, Joe's Deli and Jelly Donuts. Okay? Mm -hmm. I have no problem if that local company wants to say that. I'm having a problem because we no longer have a real true free market when it comes to some of these giant corporations. They are in bed with the government. We know that from social media. They admit it. When you're in bed with the government, you should not uh, be exempt from const constitutional uh, underpinnings. You can't violate the First Amendment. We know that Google... And Facebook and, uh, you know, and uh, Twitter, they all are in and have said that they're in with the government, mm -hmm. okay, doing the bidding of the government. Well, that makes you an extension of the government. I'm sorry. We don't, we never thought of it this way, but some of these big corporations, they're wielding so much power now because the government is putting small businesses out of business that I don't give you the same protections that I give the local mom and pop because you are, you are so connected to the government that you are actually beginning to be part of the government. Yeah, I'm nervous about this on both sides, right? Yeah, I am too. I, I am too. I'm nervous about saying every business we think is important is some public utility and we're going to start regulating it like it's an arm of the government. But I'm also very nervous about what they're doing with this association. And that's why you should not have uh, these giant companies in bed with the government. Correct. And what we just heard was from Glenn Beck's show of August 30th, where they were talking about private property and freedom. And you could tell, Paul, that both of the speakers were very uncomfortable about this issue. And they said so from the beginning. And, and, and it is a tough one. I mean, there are all of these questions. Those are the questions that we keep hearing about. Does a company have the right to say no shoes, no shirt, no service? What would you say? I would say yes, they do. Uh, because again, you're not attacking a person's nature by having such a, a, a rule. You're not saying, you know, that you're a member of the blue shirt collective. <laughs> you're not saying... Well, you know, that's exactly, that's exactly how some people look at it. Well, they're a collective of people who don't wear shirts and shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not their nature. <laughs> yeah, it, that's right. It doesn't really go to their nature. You know, right. that's just the guy being silly. And that's I think or, that's one of the comments he made, right? That it would be a really strange business model. Well, that would be the one, you know, if you anyone with a blue shirt can't enter, right? Yeah. <laughs> but he said yes. Would you say yes to that too? Somebody said uh, people with blue shirts can't enter? Yeah, I think that's a, that rule's fine. 
because you can just go change your shirt. It's not like you're changing what you are. Well, doesn't that then contradict what we might say about a vaccination? Okay, so yeah, okay, I can go and get the vaccination. Well, if the vaccine's doing what it claims to do, then it changes you. You aren't who you are. Hmm. But what if the person person demanding that you get a vaccination sees it as this existential issue, that if he lets you in a store, you're going to kill him and all his customers? Well, I think that's where you get into, you know, when Ayn Rand was talking about quarantine. It has to be a demonstrable harm, not just an irrational fear. And especially when we now know that people who are vaccinated can, you know, become infected, pass on the infection, get sick. It's completely irrational now to worry that someone who's not ill might be infected and pass on an infection. That's right. And it's the same, you know, we're hearing more people who have had the vaccine, quote unquote, who are infecting others. And yet you still wouldn't support a law discriminating against them either, would you? No, I wouldn't. Uh, Vaccination status, I think we're getting into, you know, something equivalent to whether you have one leg or two. It's what you are. It's not what you're wearing. It's a different thing. Now, one of the other interesting arguments they got into was where small companies, they said they didn't have a problem with a small mom and pop store, but with corporations, you know, there's no free market. You know, when they're in bed with the government, you're not exempt from constitutional rights. Well, in a way, I would say every business, even the small ones, are they're not in bed with the government, but they're under the government's umbrella, right? When they are engaged in business, we have to keep that distinction clear. We're not talking about when you're in your bedroom or sitting in your kitchen or in your living room watching TV, okay? Well, well, even there, you're in bed with the government. Let's just take the example you're watching TV. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't murder anybody or, or... Exactly, right? Yeah, I get it, yeah. So what you can't say is that there's some magical space where the law doesn't apply, where the government doesn't have jurisdiction, right? And it seems as though, uh, you know, the rights argument proponents... Uh, I'm not saying they come out and say this, But on some level, their argument is consistent with the idea that this is my house, I can do whatever I want here. Right. And I think that's more of an emotional feeling, you know, emotional response than one that's been thought out. Because not to say that they haven't read lots of things by lots of smart people talking about how rights are the only rule of government, you know, to defend rights is the only rule of government. not saying that. But that argument is consistent with the idea that there's sort of this anarchic space. That's not the case. And so you don't need a, a formal or even an informal, you know, business government partnership, public-private partnership. That's really neither here nor there. What matters is that the store owner wants the state to do something in accordance with the law. And so the question is, oh, well, what's, what's the scope of the law? Under what circumstances must the state use force? As soon as you say there's a law and the state can use force or must use force, okay, well then... What's the, what are the conditions pursuant to which a person can call upon the use of that force? Can they call upon the use of that force because they want to enforce collectivism? Because they want to treat people as irrational animals like rats? Because they want to have everybody put everyone else first? And I think the answer is no. That's not the purpose of property rights. Therefore, it's not a property right. It doesn't fall within the scope of property rights to do those but, things. But, but there's certainly a different line of... Uh you know, acceptable discrimination between who you have or what you do in your home versus a business. In a lot of ways, a lot of people see private property rights as being that instrument of discrimination. I'm not, we're not talking about murdering people in your home or anything like that, but would you right. object to somebody saying they can't come into your house if they're not vaccinated? No, I have no objection to that. 
See, there you go. There is that yeah. distinction. Yeah. And so before anybody starts running around saying that we're talking about your personal home and private property in that sense, it's a different thing. Once you extend that invitation into the public sphere to come to your property, whatever it happens to be, and you're opening that door to the public, you got to treat everyone equally as a member of that public. That's basically where we're going with this, right? Yeah, the sign open to the public means open to the public. All of right. the public. All of the public. Not just the ones I cherry pick. Uh, my house is not open to the public. That's why no one walks in the front door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else you wanted to add before our time runs out here today? Well, I just hope that, you know, people like myself, people who have been like myself, who've for years advocated, made the rights argument, you know, will take a step back, give what I'm proposing here an honest thought, and if you're an objectivist and you're saying, well, I don't know, I'm a little uncomfortable deviating from the rights arguments, the one I've been using for most of my life or most of my, what's mostly what I read. I mean, Yaron Brook used it, so maybe I'm, I'm getting off base when I try this new and unapproved thing. Well, I think this is where Ayn Rand would say, judge for yourself. And I think also Ayn Rand might even be sympathetic to the argument because of the fact that it doesn't make the mistake of disregarding what she herself said about metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Uh, I think it actually is a, cons a view of, of law and of rights that is consistent with objectivism, even if she you know, didn't include it in her works. Now, I'm not saying that it is objectivism. I, I take the view that whatever Ayn Rand said was objectivism is objectivism uh, and nothing else. But uh, I'm also saying that people live and change and we have limited lives. And I'm thinking that if Ayn Rand had had the opportunity to, to consider an argument like this, I think she might agree with me that it's an argument that's consistent with her philosophy. Yeah, I certainly don't see anything about it that would violate the idea of a right. I think what you're trying to say is that rights should be brought more in, in line with the nature of human beings. Just because you are a human being and you abandon your own nature, you don't keep your rights. You have to stick within the nature of the being that is capable of possessing rights, I guess, if I'm yeah. saying that awkwardly. <laughs> is yeah, that well, okay? Yeah, your store door doesn't turn human beings into rats. Right. Well, Paul, it's an interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. We may not have convinced everyone, and if anyone still has questions, please do write them, but we'll keep trying, and that's what we'll be doing when we invite you to join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be uh, okay, you're checked in. Yeah, thank you. Here's your AIDS ribbon. Uh, no thanks. You don't want to wear an AIDS ribbon? Uh, no, no. But you have to wear an AIDS ribbon. I have to? Yes. Yeah, see, that's why I don't want to. But everyone wears the ribbon. You must wear the ribbon. What you are? You're a ribbon bully. Hey! Hey, you! Come back here! Hey, where's your ribbon? Oh, I don't wear the ribbon. You don't wear the ribbon? Aren't you against AIDS? Yeah, I'm against AIDS. I mean, I'm walking on it. Don't wear the ribbon. Who do you think you are? Put the ribbon on. Hey, Cedric, Bob, this guy won't wear a ribbon. Who? Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? <laughs> so, what's it going to be? Are you going to wear the ribbon? No, oh, never. 
But I'm wearing the ribbon. He's wearing the ribbon. We are all wearing the ribbon. So why aren't you going to wear the ribbon? This is America. I don't have to wear anything I don't want to wear. What are we going to do with him? I huh? guess we're just going to have to teach him to wear the ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.